from St. Louis Public Radio. This is Politically Speaking. The 2021 legislative session yielded significant legislation that will reverberate throughout the state for years to come. Republicans finished some priorities that hung in legislative limbo for years, and even the deeply outnumbered Democrats played key roles in influencing the process. Yet the success of the past five months also featured a last day of session that was personified by frustration and the failure to approve some key bills. So on the latest episode of Politically Speaking, St. Louis Public Radio's Jonathan All and Rachel Lipman join me to break down the ins and outs of the 2021 legislative session and why lawmakers are coming back for overtime. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. We have to talk about things that matter to people. I've tried to bring that same aggressive iconoclast style with me to uh, the United States Senate. I think my district is a model for the state. We put Missourians first. You just kind of have to find the common ground with people. I believe that this district deserves someone who represents their values. After I came back to St. Louis, I started thinking that I could have a bigger role on the change that I wanted to make. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio political correspondent Jason Rosenbaum. Joining me in studio today is Rachel Lippman. And joining us from Rolla, Missouri, St. Louis Public Radio's Rolla correspondent, Jonathan All. And we are here to talk about the end of the 2021 legislative session. This was a very fascinating session um, because, as I wrote about on Monday, I don't think that anybody is arguing that the legislature did not do some very significant things that will have a major impact on the state. But the way they got there was challenging, to say the least, which we're going to talk about on the second half of the show. But I want to just play a clip from House Speaker Rob Vescovo talking about all the things that the GOP-controlled legislature passed this year. We got Missouri Empowerment Scholarships uh, done, ESAs. We got foster care tax deductions done. We got adoption tax credits. We got birth match, uh, preventing misuse of seclusion and restraint, supporting victims of abuse, termination of parental rights language, increased, increased foster care and adoption subsidies. We got, we just went out there and we did the Second Amendment Preservation Act, Wayfair, tort reform, uh, children's residential homes. It was a big priority for all of us. Raise the age, it was a huge issue. Uh, health orders dealing with COVID, um, treasure investments, protecting victims of abuse, uh, law enforcement bill of rights, which we just finished a little while ago. And that's only kind of a partial list because we're going to be talking about some of those issues more in depth. Jonathan, I think you were following the legislature near the end. Were you surprised about the legislature's productivity? Yes and no. I mean, definitely there were some things that flew through and you're like, wow, that that's amazing that that happened. I mean, just the fact that that the all of the different points of view on police reform Uh, came together to pass something by an almost unanimous vote, that floored me. On the other hand, there's some real common sense stuff that didn't get done, um, like the the tax on hospitals that'll fund uh, Medicaid that uh, they'll end up having to come back uh, into special sessions for. So, you know, like with most sessions of any state uh, assembly, some column A, some column B. 
when when Speaker Viscovo sent, you know, put that list out there, yes, there is a lot that managed to get done. And I'll, you know, discuss a little later about how just bonkers it is that that's all the in the entire week of session. But I'm with Jonathan. Yes. You know, when you when you look at sort of the final picture, there is a lot that got done. But there's also a lot that they decided to punt because they are trying to mix social issues in with things that just kind of need to happen. And that's a, a you know, an inefficient way to try and govern sometimes. So, you know, on the on the whole, yeah, it's incredibly productive. It just all happened within the space of five days. And um, we're missing some some big pieces, too, that the state will need to get done. And we're going to talk about the meltdown over what's known as the FRA in the second half of the show. But I want to go through some of the major accomplishments of the session. Um, the first is something I don't think Speaker Viscovo mentioned, and that's the establishment of a statewide prescription drug monitoring program, something that's been championed for years by Senator Holly Rader. I asked the Scott City Republican if her winning election to the Senate made a difference, and here's what she had to say. I don't think it did. I think that, um, you know, this is a bipartisan piece of of legislation, and I think, um, you know, the fact that that people get addiction. One in three families are struggling with this. And so the fact that you have the medical professionals dealing with this every day and wanting this tool, the fact that you have so many of our counties already in this program, I think those are the two things that really helped. And and the fact that everyone knows someone's struggling. Rachel, were you surprised that this was finally the year PDMP passed? I'm actually going to have to step back and 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 say that I don't know that uh, Senator Rader is giving herself enough credit. The Senate had always been the choke point in getting PDMP passed. It normally will get out of the House and go over to the Senate and just they can't reach an agreement on something. I think last year it was over boosting the penalties for uh, fentanyl distribution. Always stuff always just seemed to get added on at the last minute to kill it. So I think the ability of them to talk directly to their colleague may have played a big role than she thinks. The ability for them to, you know, go and directly ask her questions, directly talk to her as a legislative colleague. Obviously, when she's in the state house, she's a colleague, but I think it's different when she's in the chamber with them and they have a more personal relationship with her. I think also, too, what did help was St. Louis County has had its PDMP in place for a couple of years now that covers, as she mentioned, 85 percent of the counties in the state. And people were able to see that it isn't a huge intrusion of of, of privacy. So um, what what has been pointed out to me, and we'll get into, you know, the discussion of Medicaid expansion failing, is that PDMP is an enforcement tool on the side of doctors distributing the medications. It doesn't necessarily help those who are struggling with opioid use disorder. Um, it doesn't support treatment for them. It doesn't support uh, other, you know, ways to it doesn't support treatment for them. So while it's a tool to, you know, restrict access to it, it doesn't necessarily totally stop the issue of substance use disorder. Jonathan, how do you think the advent of a statewide prescription drug monitoring program is going to affect places like you cover in Rolla and other parts of rural Missouri? I think the general reaction in the rural areas are it's about damn time but also it might be too late to have as much impact as it could have you know compared to had it been passed years ago because you know in the last 3 4 5 years there has been a significant reduction in the amount of prescriptions of opioids everywhere as the problem has become uh, more well known 
And and while that doesn't help the people who are already in its grip, um, and as Rachel said, there isn't enough help for those people necessarily at the state level, but it, it, the problem is much more known and, and the prescription, the prescribing of this has gone down. Uh, so I think that, and, and study after study after study has shown that rural areas have a higher percentage per capita of uh, opioids that are uh, prescribed, have a higher uh, level of addiction, have a higher level of overdose and death. And in rural areas, this has been really waiting for a long time. And and of course, one of the things that has held it up in the Senate, as Rachel was talking about, is this idea of invasion of privacy, this idea of small government that is really uh, an idea that's championed a lot by rural Republicans. And it really hurt their districts in a lot of ways, especially if you talk to any healthcare provider or any social worker that does anything outside the metro areas. This is so long overdue, and it could have helped a lot more had it been passed years ago. But I think they're happy that it's done. Jonathan, I want to go back to something you said earlier about the passage of this overhaul of, of law enforcement procedure and, and 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 criminal justice. It was it was a bill that was partly propelled by Senator Brian Williams, a university city Democrat, as well as Senator Tony Luchtemeyer, a Republican who, as I often acknowledge, is my actual friend, has been my actual friend for years. And I try not to cover things that he does, but this is such a big deal. I kind of have to make an exception here. Here's Senator Williams talking about why this was the year, many ideas that have been floating around since Ferguson in 2014, finally made it to the finish line. Well, uh, seven years ago, I wasn't in the legislature, but um, you know, George Floyd could have easily been me. So I think about Michael Brown, Breonna Taylor, uh, they should be alive today. So that was a focus for me. Uh, now we have an opportunity to ban chokeholds, uh, hold police officers accountable. Uh, it went even further now and become a uh, criminal justice reform package. Um, my colleagues behind me, Senator Washington, Senator Roberts, uh, contributed uh, tremendously to that. Clearly, Senator Shoup, as well as Senator Arthur, whether we're uh, doing a motion to vacate, now local prosecutors can open up cases and address uh, unsolved uh, um, verdicts like Lamar Johnson. So Jonathan, as a, the reason why I'm paying attention to this is I've been following ideas that came after Michael Brown's shooting death in Ferguson since 2014. And this is probably the most significant bill that has passed the legislature because it includes things like a use of force database that police officer or police departments are going to have to enter whenever a police officer shoots and kills anybody, as well as a, a system trying to prevent cops with problematic records from bouncing from police department to police department. Uh, what's kind of your view of this? Because you, you saw this uh, debate play out in the House, and I think that House members also saw the significance of this as well. I, I think what happened here was, um, depending on your perspective, it could be a classic example of compromise that gives everybody something to talk about that they were that was important to them. You know, we talk about you know the the ban of chokeholds and and the database that you talked about and and some of those other things that that you know in the House representatives like Aldridge and Bosley got up and said, look, this is a huge step forward. This is us doing our jobs. And they they have something to talk about that they're very passionate about, and very important to them. I think what we also have to remember is that on the other side of the aisle, you could have people say, we kept Kansas City 
from discriminating against who they hire to be police officers by lifting the requirement. It was one of those pieces of legislation that was big enough that a lot of different political opinions in a lot of different areas could stand up and hold up their hand and say, I voted before it because, and fill in the blank to something that, uh, that, that they're very passionate about. Oddly enough, I think the only no votes on this came from people that were upset that with the provision that would raise pay for most of the county sheriffs around the state uh, because they said it was an unfunded mandate. So even in this really wide compromising bill, there's still a few representatives in there that had that one thing they really hated. But the reason why it passed, in my opinion, was it was comprehensive enough Everybody liked something about it, and what they didn't like about it didn't bug them too much. I agree with Jonathan that this is the classic, nobody is entirely happy about it, but everything, everyone is able to go home to their district and talk about something that is a part of it. I think there were even provisions in there that dealt with electric fencing, a little bit unrelated to law enforcement, but it was a vehicle to to carry it over the line. I think it's going to be interesting to see exactly how these databases are set up, play out, what the regulations are going to be, how exactly they're implemented, and and how that information is going to be able to access by individuals outside of the law enforcement community, reporters, the public, etc. Um, I think, you know, stopping the muni shuffle, which is where officers with problematic records jump from, you know, little community in St. Louis to little community in St. Louis to little community in St. Louis, um, will be interesting to, to see if that cuts off an employment pool, maybe? I don't know. Like, there could be some unintended consequences to this to this bill. It'll just be interesting to see how it plays out and what the information is going to be available. Um, before we go to break, I think we, it would be remiss if I didn't talk about the other major accomplishment, which was the passage of a gas tax hike. It's going to be 2.5 cents per year for five years. So if my math is correct... What is that? Twelve point five cents. Yeah, or something it brings like it up that? to twenty nine. That brings the state portion of the gas tax up to twenty nine point five cents by the time it's fully implemented. And this was an issue where House Democrats, in particular, played a pretty big role because they universally supported this when a lot of Republicans were speaking out against it for you know the obvious reasons. A lot of Republicans don't like gas tax increases. Here is House Minority Leader Crystal Quay talking about the impact of her caucus on that and on other issues this session. And we have to do that because the Republican majority refuses to take real action and fix real policy. The gas tax increase was not the solution. It is a Band-Aid. We understand that. We've, we supported it. Many members of our caucus supported it because it absolutely has to get done. And the folks of Missouri are begging for infrastructure help. And we don't want to be liable when bridges collapse. But to that point, they come to us when they need support on things, but the rest of it, you know, it's very unlikely that we get hearings. Our bills don't cross the finish line. But that said, we had well over 25 bills that our members filed cross the finish line this year. Now, they may not have had our names on it, but we don't care because we're here for good policy. I, I got to say, um, Quaid is not lying when she said that. There were some major pieces of legislation that Democrats either usually worked with other Republicans on that ended up being part of larger bills. Two examples that come to mind are uh, Ian Mackey and Dottie Bailey's uh, restrictions on secluding and restraining children, and also uh, a, a piece of legislation that was sponsored by Rudy Veet and Carrie Engel, putting more oversight of children's residential facilities. And, and there are a lot of other examples of that beyond just the gas tax. Jonathan, are, were you surprised Democrats were able to make as big of an impact as, as, they, as they did this year? 
Eh, it's hard to say. You know, I think that that one of the phenomena that happens, regardless of who's in power, is when there's one party in power, especially if they have a supermajority or something close to it, is that the factions build within that supermajority and they don't agree on things. So then all of a sudden the minority has a little bit of pull. They don't have a ton, but they have a little bit. And I think that that's what you're seeing here is that, that uh, you know, that, that because uh, the, the, the Republicans are, can be so uh, div- divisive amongst themselves in some ways that all of a sudden the Democrats are like, well, hey, we're over here. If you want to work with us, we can help you. And they were able to do that in some ways. I'm also not surprised about bill jacking where, you know, someone in the majority takes a good idea that's in a minority bill's, uh, you know, language and then pulls it over so it looks like their bill. That happens all the time. I'm not surprised by that. I mean, I, from my perspective, I think the Democrats had as much influence on what got done this session as a minority party possibly could. A super minority, especially. Yes, definitely. We'll be right back after this quick break with a further overview of the 2021 legislative session. And we're back on Politically Speaking with St. Louis Public Radio's Jonathan All and Rachel Lipman breaking down the fast and furious 2021 legislative session. Okay, so we spent the first part of the show talking about what did get done. So let's talk about the second part. Let's use the second part of the show to talk about what didn't happen. I think you can make an argument that Medicaid expansion not being funded is probably the thing that people are going to talk about the most. And we're going to spend a lot of time talking about that in this part of the show. But as far as like things that absolutely had to pass and didn't pass, the glaring thing is the passage of the FRA. And to give a little bit of background of what happened here, um, this is a tax that Medical providers like hospitals pay on themselves to help pay for for Medicaid, and it significantly reduces the amount of general revenue that the state needs to provide to pay for the program. For those who are curious, I believe it stands for Federal Reimbursement Allowance. And what happened this year is that socially conservative senators wanted to attach either cutting off funding for certain contraception or, or cutting off taxpayer funding for Planned Parenthood. And in the end, like there couldn't be a consensus reached on that. And this bill was not passed, which means there's going to be a special session on this. And I actually asked Senator Bob Onder whether the tensions over this are suddenly going to disappear in a special session. Here's what he had to say. No, of course they're not. I think uh, given that the Missouri Supreme Court has said that we cannot uh, protect Uh, innocent human life, defund Planned Parenthood in our budget, it's a perfect opportunity in a FRA special session to defund Planned Parenthood once and for all in our statute. Jonathan, you saw this, you saw the the result of the unable to come to a compromise uh, in pretty spectacular fashion on Friday. What, What happened on Friday when it was clear that there wasn't going to be compromise on the FRA? The they gaveled in about an hour late, it started with an update on Senator Greg Razor, who um, unfortunately uh, fainted the night before in the Capitol, and they gave a quick update on his health, and then the Democrats directly went into a filibuster. And they railed Senator uh, Rizzo, started by railing on Republicans, saying that their word was no good, that they couldn't be trusted with a compromise, and that they, the Democrats wanted to work with them, but that they felt that they couldn't because of broken promises. And then they just wasted time 
time uh, on, for about two and a half hours until all of a sudden there were no Republicans in the chamber. Senator Rizzer made a motion to adjourn and they've rather abruptly adjourned. End of their session. So, yeah, it was uh, the, the Democrats were ticked off and they used what they had available to them to kind of shut everything down and move on. Here is Senator John Rizzo of a Democrat from Independence talking just about his broader frustrations with the Republican leadership this year. You know, it's, it's broken promises and it's one of those things that it's not quite enough to break the Senate. Yesterday finally was, in my opinion. It's one of those things to where it's, we'll get to you, or yeah, we'll do this, and then it's five other things come up on the floor, and then it's, 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 it's just, it's a complete misleading all the time. We don't know a lot of times what bills are gonna come up in the day. That's House stuff. It's the way the entire Senate's been operated the entire year. My, my caucus comes up to me, and they go, what are we gonna work on today? And I go, you're taking for granted, they know what they're gonna work on. There are actually a lot of Republicans who are really, really upset with Senate President Pro Tem Dave Schatz, a Republican from Sullivan, because he voted. And, and we're getting into the, the weeds here. The Missouri Independent That's the point of the politics podcast, uh, the, though. the Missouri Independent wrote a, a very good detailing of like why sending this bill to conference committee was bad and why Senator Schatz voting for this was bad. So I'm going to let you all read that. But Jonathan, Rachel, what do you think about about this? I mean, I think it's the fact that every year this seems to come up. Every year there's an attempt to, you know, to to borrow, hijack, whatever word you want to call it, the FRA language to implement some further restrictions on contraception and, and funding for Planned Parenthood. And every year it somehow manages to come out clean. And this was the one year that for whatever reason, it didn't happen. And as, you know, Senator Ander said, does that change in a special session? No. Um, And it'll just be interesting to see how leadership is able to corral their members and say, you know what, look, we're not going to let you do this. And then if they do do that, how does that play into all of the other issues that are going to have to be decided in special sessions? So it's always something that gets pushed to the last day and it always manages to get across the the, the finish line and it just it just blew up. I think that makes perfect sense. And, you know, I I think that. I do believe that the legislature is going to pass a clean FRA in special session. I really do think that they're going to do that. There will be allowances made for the uh, chest thumping um, of those people for whom, you know, contraceptive and defunding Planned Parenthood and anti-abortion measures are the single most important thing in their minds and in the minds of some part of their constituency. And they they absolutely will demand for the platform to um, rail on that as long as possible. And I think that will still happen. But I still think they're going to get a clean FRA out, out of special session. So let's talk about Medicaid expansion not being funded, because for almost 275,000 people that would have gotten access to this program, they're going to listen to the first part of the show and and where we talked about all the accomplishments, and I'm not saying that some of those things won't affect them, but it's going to be cold comfort for them. Because I think that when when the constitutional amendment for Medicaid expansion passed last year, they were expecting Medicaid expansion to happen. And right now it's in a lot of limbo because without the funding for Medicaid expansion, it prompted Governor Mike Parson to pull the plan to the federal government to actually follow through with it. 
This is what he explained to reporters last week. And the bottom line, the legislature didn't fund it. Uh, I think I've been pretty open all along about that. I didn't support it originally, but when the people of this state voted for it, we put it in the budget. I think that was my job as the governor. But then I also think the, pro the, the priority of it is the legislator has to fund it. There's no other way around that. So when they simply didn't do that, there wasn't a lot of choices left, other than I do believe it'll end up in the courts. Now, I know a lot of people have been upset with Governor Parson for what he did. Um, and I, I totally understand the optics of it. But some of the, one of the things that I explained on Twitter is by pulling back the federal amendment, it basically allows somebody to go sign up for Medicaid on July 1st. They're going to get rejected and they can file a lawsuit a lot quicker. The alternative to if Parson had actually, you know, allowed people to sign up for Medicaid is Medicaid would have eventually run out of money. And if the legislature refused to fund expansion, we would have been in uncharted territory where hospitals and doctors don't get reimbursed. So neither option is good, but it seems like the option Parson took kind of allows this to be resolved more quickly in the courts. Jonathan, what do you think about that? I mean, I think it's going to get resolved in the courts, and I think that they're going to have to fund it. And and I think that that it's very interesting that the legislature decided to do what they did. Um, I specifically asked Speaker Vescovo if um, if if this is just all about giving cover to members who want to be able to tell their constituency that they voted against big government and they voted against this, but you know the liberal court made them do it, which is one of the talking points. He denied it, but I don't necessarily believe him. I think that that, you know, this gives those people who voted against it some cover with their constituency. But I think ultimately it's going to happen. And it's a real shame for the rural areas because Medicaid reimbursements are such a huge percentage of the revenue for rural hospitals and rural health care providers that that not expanding Medicaid really hurts rural areas even more than urban areas. So this isn't Rob Vescovo talking about the issue that you mentioned, but this is Senator Rizzo kind of following up on, on the points that you just made. But at the end of the day, uh, they want to have all of the adulation to their red meat by saying we are opposing Medicaid expansion, knowing on the back end it's going to happen in a court. And then they get to tell a liberal judge that forced us to do Obamacare and, you know, the attorney general gets to go into a courtroom and fight against Joe Biden, and he loves suing everybody. And, you know, I think we're suing Major Biden and Champ Biden. And it's a complete political game. It's a game that they're playing with people's lives. And it's sad because it's not about providing health care or we to pass an FRA. It's not about providing health care or we would have expanded Medicaid like the people wanted. It's about their next office. It's about how fast and quickly they can move to get more power. And unfortunately, in the state of Missouri, they've been it, it's worked for him. It's worked for him for quite a while. I think Governor Parson has to take some of the blame, heat, whatever here for it. He stood up in his state of the state and referenced that he had put Medicaid expansion in the budget or believed that it should be there. 
He is a lawmaker. He knows, a former lawmaker, he knows how to go over there, work with his colleagues, whatever, put it in the budget. If he genuinely believed that it needed to be funded, he could have found the way to do it. And, I, you know, he said he opposed it, but once it was passed, he needed to put it in the budget. He could have fought to keep it in the budget. You know, yes, he may have made a good tactical move so that this lawsuit could move faster, but he knows how the game is played under the dome in the two chambers. And he could have, you know, laid down the law and said, this is what we are going to do. And he didn't. And I think he has to take some form of responsibility for that, that he didn't advocate for something that he said he would put in his budget. Well, to play devil's advocate, though, the one, one the, the Republicans are often divided on a lot of different issues, but they've been pretty unified for the past 15 years that they don't want Medicaid to be expanded to the working poor. They want it to be basically reserved for the most destitute Missourians. And they've opposed it when after the Affordable Care Act came out and they were going to get 100 percent funding. And they're even opposing it now when a lot of money is going to come from the the American Rescue Plan. Jonathan, are, are you, are you, what do you think of Rachel's point about, about Parsons' uh, culpability here? I think she's directly on point, and I agree with her. Uh, the only thing I'd add is that Parson has been hands-off on almost everything. I mean, he, he has not got along with this legislature very well in any respects, and I don't think he was behind the scenes trying to get anything done. I think Governor Parson's just kind of been letting the legislature do what it's going to do, and then he'll do what he's going to do. Whether that's a good way to govern or not, I suppose, is sub- sus- subject to interpretation and perspective. But um, I I agree with Rachel, but I would also say that at least it's consistent with how he's been approaching everything that the legislature does. As we end the show, I want to play a clip from Senate Majority Leader Caleb Rowden, where I asked him, if the failure to pass something like the FRA overshadowed a lot of the legislature's accomplishments. And then I'm going to use this as a jumping off point for our final thoughts. I mean, look, I think, again, the the Senate is a unique place um, with 34 very, very unique personalities. I think any any notion um, that because we didn't do something that, that doesn't have to be done until September 30th is somehow a failure, I think is a misclassification. I think it's a, a, a very short-sighted view of things. Uh, we are standing here today, standing on the top of, of a record of accomplishments, conservative accomplishments, things that we've worked for um, decades. Jonathan, what are, what are your final takeaways of the legislative session? And do you think that uh, Senator Rowden has a point there? Or do you think that the things that didn't get passed are going to cast a pall over this session? Most interpretations of how a legislative session ends really end up being tofu. It takes upon the flavor of the other things that you put around it. So, you know, whether this session was a success or not, or whether the most big priorities were passed or not, um, that has nothing to do with what actually happened and has everything to do with uh, in, in what light you cast it in. And I think this session was no different. I think this session just proved how 
dumb the way the Missouri legislature handles its legislation is. The, the waiting until the last week of session and putting everything into an omnibus bill is just it's absurd. Get these naming bills done early in session. Use it to have people get their procedural legs under them. Start negotiating on issues long before your final week of session. Just think about how much stress it puts on the the system itself. Leave the lawmakers out of this for a second. Think about their legislative staffs. Think about the bill printing staffs. Think about the you know ones who are drafting this legislation. Think about all of the points at which the errors could be there. The clerk staff, the secretary staff. You had a senator pass out because he'd been in the chamber and in that building for 20 hours. It's just such a dumb, stressful way to govern on the entire legislative system, senates at arms, nonpartisan staff, et cetera. And it leads to problems. Just, you know, start laying the groundwork. Yes, four months is a short session, but you can start laying the groundwork over the summer and get some of these things done before the last week. It's just unnecessary. Well, to to piggyback on your point, that's never going to change as long as Missouri is is a part-time legislature. If you want to have some of these things stretch longer, you should make them the session, you know, eight, nine, ten months and pay them seventy or eighty thousand dollars a year like in Illinois. But that's never going to happen, no matter how much we talk about that. Uh, my my other takeaway is that uh, we're not done yet, in addition to the FRA session. Uh, we get to have Jason Rosenbaum-Palooza later this year where we will be doing congressional redistricting, which I joke about it because I love redistricting, but I honestly don't think congressional redistricting is going to be super interesting in Missouri unless they go after Emanuel's Cleaver's district, which we're going to talk about in glorious detail throughout the summer. The other thing I think we need to watch out for is if there are other special sessions either on appropriating this, the American Rescue Plan money, which I think is kind of iffy at this point. They may wait until January or they may do something on elections because elections was the one thing that they did not pass basically anything on. In addition to Dan Shaw, the House Elections Committee chairman, wanting a special session, I actually talked with Secretary of State Jay Ashcroft, and he also wants a special session on election-related items, a, a podcast you'll be able to listen to, by the way, later in the week. Jonathan, Rachel, thank you so much for your hard work in covering the last few weeks of session. I also want to thank our editor, Fred Ehrlich, for uh, being very patient with us as well. He works just as late as we do when we're out there covering it because he's waiting to edit our stuff. So, And um, not to leave this podcast on a down note, but I also want to thank um, our departed colleague, Aviva Okinson Haberman, for also covering the legislature for several weeks before she tragically passed away. Um, as I mentioned in a prior podcast, it was a tremendous lifeline, especially for me, but I also know for a lot of other news outlets throughout uh, the public radio universe. And we miss you every day, Aviva. For all of our stories, go to stlpr.org. Politically Speaking is a product of St. Louis Public Radio, which is part of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Follow me on Twitter, Jay Rosenbaum. How can people follow you on Twitter, Jonathan? At Jonathan All. And Rachel. At R. Lipman, two P's, two N's. We'll see you next time.
from St. Louis Public Radio. This is Politically Speaking.